Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. The White House next week will announce a new national strategy to secure the Internet of Things, a topic that we heard about a couple of weeks ago on this program and have discussed over some time. This, as some of the nation's leading cyber minds, maintain that the approach to improving the nation's overall cybersecurity may be woefully inadequate. Joining us now is one of the nation's leading cyber and national security minds, Mark Montgomery, a retired United States Navy Rear Admiral who is now the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Uh, he is also the Director of the Bipartisan Cyber Solarium 2.0 Commission. Thanks uh, very much for uh, joining us and a very happy Navy birthday on this, the 247th anniversary of the founding of uh, one of history's greatest navies. Thank you very much for having me, Vago, and happy birthday to you as well. Indeed, thanks uh, Thanks very much. Before we get started, our daily coverage is sponsored by Bell. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting uh, that just took place this week was sponsored by Safran and Leonardo DRS. Uh, Mark, it's a pleasure as always having you on the program. Uh, thanks so much for making time for us. Uh, the administration has been moving at breakneck speed to improve the nation's cyber uh, defenses, uh, as, um, a lot of it being driven by the Cyber Solarium, uh, Cyberspace Solarium Commission's uh, recommendations that have been passed into law with the National Cyber Director and, and what have you. So there is uh, presidential uh, focus on this. Uh, we saw some Russian hacking attacks last week that was directed at airports, although it didn't appear to be meaningful. We heard from Justin Sherman a couple of weeks ago, um, from uh, who is a Wired magazine contributor, and he works at the Atlantic Council, and he discussed the think tank's new report on how to secure uh, the uh, Internet of Things, or IoT. What should we expect to hear from the White House next week, and how do you think it'll matter? So um, first, uh, I really support what the White House is doing here. I think working on IoT, I'd expand to say OT, all operational technology, which some of which goes feeds into IoT and some of which is independent, is an area that has not been addressed as significantly as say the IT and information technology and information control systems, ICS technology. So this focus is uh, is well deserved. Um, you know, Congress, I think in 2020. Uh, in the uh, past in the NDA guidance to NIST to, to take a look at this exact issue. And I think this is the fruition of that. Um, uh, the, the Cyberspace Learning Commission had a very explicit recommendation for labeling and certification system. And I'll see, I think you'll see those come together over the next week at, at the White House in a, in, in a conference they're holding where they begin, where they suggest that they're going to have some kind of certification and labeling for IoT products. And that's important because it's very hard for the consumer or small business to judge, is this product secure or not, just based on the, the, the advertising on the box. You know, much like um, underwriter laboratories stamp on your electrical plug or a, uh, a green energy uh, star on your uh, washer, dryer, washing machine, the idea of a certification labeling done by somebody else who tells you, look, this meets a minimum standard would be a useful uh, uh, device, a useful attribute to have, and so we, I really support what the White House is headed towards here. Uh, 
Um, and, and what does this mean uh, for the military ecosystem, right? I mean, increasingly you find very thoughtful military folks, uh, right? I mean, General Jim Jones has been one of the people who's been talking about a, a very interlinked future based on five and, and 6G technology, uh, looking at the future of connectivity, how you do a military internet of things. What does this civilian move mean for American national security? Because actually, even on the civilian side of things, right? I mean, if you have a <laughs> if you have an IoT microwave that's listening to you all the time, that might be a little bit problematic in uh, the flag officer's mess at the Pentagon. Well, you're exactly right. I think there's two aspects to this. One is the degree to which the military relies on private sector infrastructure um, to operate, you know, electrical power grids, water systems, having a certification and labeling system on some of the uh, OT and IoT products that go into that is critical to national security, as well as to economic uh, productivity and public health and safety. Uh, but it definitely has a national security. The second aspect is exactly what you referred to, which is that some of these components can easily move into a military environment, whether it's a product, as you said, like a microwave, or a smaller um, uh, device that is dual technology and can be used in a private sector um, uh, uh, situation or in a military one, beginning to, you know, creating the conditions where something has this um, this labeling certification stamp that says it, it at production, it met a very specific NIST standard. Now, and here's one important element to this. And the reason IoT and OT is where I would have begun this, uh, which is that uh, this is reasonable to do, this kind of labeling for a product that does not get a lot of upgrades or, uh, or updates during its lifetime, um, like OT and IoT products. If you were to start this with software in the IT world, well, you know, you get a software um, uh, product that you purchase, you're downloading patches the first time you turn it on. And the question is, was the certification for the product you purchased or for these follow-on patches, is the certification still valid? And, and most of us would have that question almost immediately. And so software is gonna be a much harder nut to crack on this certification and labeling. Uh, I'm really glad they started with IoT and, and hopefully they expand it to OT if it's not implicit within the initial uh, workload, uh, because I think that's a much more manageable problem. Um, you were instrumental in orchestrating uh, and then systemically implementing the legislation uh, from uh, the Solarium uh, Commission's uh, findings. And that's the heart, as I mentioned earlier in the program of the nation's improved cyber uh, capabilities. What would have to happen legislatively to make the administration's plan work? Um, or do they have enough regulatory authority, right? I mean, what, what kind of lifting needs to be done on, from Congress on this? So I think our, our take, uh, our, our assessment was that you could do this with existing authorities and, uh, and resources. Um, the issue is going to come, uh, uh, but we had legislation as a backup in case the executive branch took no action. Clearly, the administration is taking action. I think that's the right way to go. Where they're going to need Congress is when they need uh, appropriations, right? What, what we're talking about is not free. Someone has to make the effort to review, assess, and certify some level of you know, th th this, this equipment. Uh, or if you're allowing this to be but through self-attestation, establish the standards and do some level of QA, uh, quality assurance of, of that production line. In any case, it's going to cost money, uh, nothing's free. And so wherever this ends up settling, whether it's what I'd hope would, would be, with, which is with a, an FFRDC or a federally funded research and development 
corporation or some other non-governmental organization, or I think less, much more problematically and less desirably with NIST itself, wherever it lands, it's going to need uh, appropriations so that it can have long-term uh, persistent resourcing. So that's where I think Congress is gonna have to come in on this, not necessarily on the legislation to authorize it, but on legislation appropriate. If at a later date, the appropriators want authorization language, then you can do the authorization language. Do, do you have any idea how much money we're we're talking about, right? I mean, a billion here, a billion there, you're talking real uh, money. Any any I, sense on how much money this is gonna be? I think this is not DOD real money. <laughs> So billions. Okay. Um, I think this is much more in the millions. And um, I don't really know how large it is because they've got to frame it. And I think that's part of next week's meeting. The other thing I'd say is the last thing the administration should do is say, here's our program. We would not like to call in the private sector and talk to you about it. I think what they're doing here is the right thing, which is we'll call you in and discuss this with you, modify our program, you know, based on appropriate, you know, on, uh, you know, uh, recommendations from the private sector. And, uh, and and then roll out a, a program. I, I'm hoping that the program isn't like dropped on Friday after a conference on Tuesday, but that they take the time to absorb those private sector recommendations and uh, and then um, and then uh, have a uh, a rollout sometime in the future. I want to uh, go to the other news of the week, but I just want to get your uh, a sense uh, on what the administration did uh, last week uh, or week before last. Right? I mean, it further clamped down. Uh, on the export of chip making technology to China. Is this closing the barn door, Mark, after the horses are gone at this point? So for sure, uh, using your metaphor, for sure, some horses are out of the barn, right? There's been intellectual property theft and uh, there's probably intellectual property theft ongoing as you and I sit here, um, or joint venture theft, you know, other other things, or right. pirating, you know, uh, all, you know, all, all levels of, uh, of uh, cyber uh, malicious espionage going on. However, you still need to shut the door because there's still things in the barn to protect. And so I think this is the right thing to do. You know, we, we've got to start establishing, this is not a punitive measure, it's a protective measure. It may have a punitive aspect for specific, uh, you know, um, Chinese uh, chip manufacturers, but that's, that's not, you know, that's not the stated intent, the stated intent is to protect um, our uh, national security intellectual property and those of our allies and partners. And so, um, yes, horses are out of the barn, uh, but I think we want to put limitations on it. And I, and I, I think this is appropriate. Um, let's uh, go to uh, the um, Cyber Brief's annual threat conference last week. Uh, you were in attendance. Uh, it is one of the nation's great uh, cyber events and obviously a lot of news flow uh, from it, uh, as well as some uh, fireworks, some of which was uh, predictable. I want to get into some of the uh, statements that were made and some of the storylines and themes and reporting that came out of it. But before we, we get to that, what, what was the consensus on the threat assessment? Mark, because this is something where, you know, you have a tendency of talking to people and they all basically say the same thing, right? I mean, if you now ask everybody lessons from Ukraine, you get sort of the same lessons, right? I mean, the Army Chief of Staff said it validates all 35 of the Army's initiatives, uh, right? Um, so it, you know, you know what I mean? It's, it, if, if, if you have something to sell or you have a particular approach, there is a validation to it. From your standpoint, from a newer, more nuanced standpoint, what did you pick up in terms of the, the threat and where the threat's going? Well, first, I have to comment on General McConville, the Army Chief of Staff. It, it not only validated his 35 priorities, it validated the one he's not doing in cruise missile defense of uh, 
of our uh, of our of our military infrastructure. But on to the uh, threats that we saw here. Look, this conference, I think, probably stepped back a tiny. There was certainly Russia-Ukraine discussion, but there was a broad and I think um, well-held uh, impression that the the threat in cyberspace is China, and the discussion was about China, and. Uh, that doesn't take away from the recognition that Russia has strong cyber capabilities and certainly uh, good capacity, um, and that they've used that against us in the past, both in espionage um, and and in you know in their support for criminal behavior, their harboring of, of criminals and ransomware and service providers. But the concentrated discussion was on the threat from China. What specifically? You know, beyond the threat from China, what type of specific things do we need to be girding for when it when it comes to the Chinese? Well, I think we need to recognize that the Chinese will will look at what happened in Russia, Ukraine, and determine that they have to do probably have to do a better job integrating their cyber um, war fighting capabilities into um, into their kinetic lines. In other words, have a have more tools ready to deploy. Um, in a uh, both in say Taiwan's critical infrastructure, but also in potential allies and supporters like the United States, Japan, and Australia, ahead of the event, um, to to ensure that they can, um, you know, use cyber tools to impose cost, which clearly Russia is struggling uh, that they were not ready to execute in a cyber way against. Um, against uh, Ukraine, with the exception of that one Viatel tool they used, where they, they did a pretty significant attack on the, um, on the uh, ground control, the equipment utilized to communicate uh, for satellite communications with their forces. But, you know, they Chinese recognize they'll have to do a better job integrating that. That's kind of the warfighting area. The other one was, you know, the, the really persistent Chinese um, intellectual property and, uh, and cyber espionage efforts against uh, U.S. national security um, you know, uh, companies and, and those allies and partners, national uh, security companies. And so we have to prepare for that's more the steady state problem we have to prepare for. And then the first thing I talked about, the warfighting part, is more the crisis contingency uh, preparation. So, look, I, I look at the Chinese cyber capability. Their capacity is large, larger than any other countries. Their capabilities are probably somewhere you know below the United States and Russia uh, and Israel but above and uh, but above almost everyone else right. so I mean you know that's they have a growing capability and a fulsome capacity and so we have to be ready for that and you know that's a lot of pressure on our um, national security economic security and public health and safety sectors you know across all 16 national critical infrastructures you brought the Russians in. So before we go to the conference, I want to ask you, right? I mean, this is a dog that has not yet barked loudly. Uh, after the Ukrainians struck the Kerch uh, bridge, there was a massive response from Moscow striking, uh, kinetically striking targets all over Ukraine, right? I mean, completely punitive, not particularly precise. I mean, it was sort of scattershot, uh, again, more sort of terror campaign. Um, there were hacks, I think, on airport uh, websites, but they didn't prove to be meaningful, is this dog barking, Mark, and we're just missing it, or is it just not a very good dog? I mean, well, listen, I think what's your evolving to, sense of this? Yeah, we have to constantly remind ourselves that before February 24th and the invasion of Ukraine, our last 
you know, uh, visit with Russian cyber capabilities was solar winds. And I would say our assessment of the SVR's execution of that was, was pretty darn good. Right. And they ran roughshod through federal systems, state and local systems, and many, many, many companies, including several of our cloud service providers, they ran roughshod through them. They hung out in them without being detected for nearly 50 months. And we were really only detected, you know, by chance. Um, so look, they have high quality, capable on-net operators. Um, you're really asking why have they not been used yet by Putin against United States critical infrastructure or Western Europe's? And I think the answer is because Western Europe has not yet put in strong hydrocarbon sanctions against Russia, right? They're, while the United States isn't taking any hydrocarbons from Russia, our European allies are still taking quite a bit. Now they're starting to dial that back. I think they may get to meet some of these high-end cyber capabilities if they do that, if, when, when he decides to impose uh, cost on them with them. I think the United States is a different, uh, yeah, that's a different duck. If he, I think this is where cyber deterrence plays a role. Russia is well aware that the United States has equal or greater offensive cyber capability than they do. And as a result, attacking us would engender significant, you know, uh, um, proportional retaliation from the United States. Could be in any realm, but would likely be in cyber. And so why impose cost on us when he's already struggling with a war, with a war fight uh, that isn't going well, right? We could make things go a lot less well for him in terms of rail services functioning, air services functioning, port facilities functioning, all those kind of things we can put at risk. So yes, the dog hasn't barked, but it hasn't barked because it, it just hasn't been the right time yet. Um, what we saw with that airport distribution is not SVR and GRU. Those airport denial of service attacks, website defacements, that is kind of, I think, Russian hacktivists, you know, who, sure, they're sheltered and enabled by Putin, but I don't think they're given their marching orders, and they certainly don't share the skill sets with the SVR and the GRU. But there are those who make the connection um, between our very powerful offensive cyber capabilities extending even into the nuclear sphere. Right, that the United States, you know, if if Putin tries to do something with tactical nuclear weapons, the United States has optionality in response. Do you think that the threat of sort of a massive retaliation on our part in the cyber realm could play into a nuclear deterrent calculus as well? The idea that the United States has like a, a, a an overwhelming strategic cyber capability, um, I do think we probably have a pretty, you know, if someone said bring out the, you know. The, the full kitchen sink, right? It would be pretty dramatic on, on Russian national critical infrastructure. And I think Putin's probably aware of that. I don't know if that factors into his nuclear um, deterrence thinking, but it definitely factors into his cyber deterrence thinking. Uh, got it. Uh, that's a topic we can talk uh, more, more about some other time because I've taken long enough now to get to the main uh, show. So at the conference, uh, we heard from former NSA Signals Intelligence Chief Teresa Shea um, saying that government industry cooperation, which uh, many of our frequent guests, whether uh, Admiral Mike Rogers or Jim Lewis or you or anybody else has called for, is failing because of confusing laws, regulations and, and, and policies. Um, you know, what's what's what what do you think of that charge? Because you've worked really hard to try to 
uh, improve that kind, you know, right, reduce the barriers, include, improve the cooperative relationship. I think Jen Easterly uh, at CESA has been trying also also to do that. What, what did you make of her criticism? And uh, if you agree with it, what is it more that we need to be doing in order to be able to fix it? So I would take two tacks on this. First, I agree that we're not getting where we need to be in the public and private partnership. We're 23 years into it and, you know, we don't have much to show for it. I would say that Jen Easterly's Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative is the right way forward. It's it's uh, it's anchored in the Joint Cyber Planning Office passed by the uh, Congress, which I think is an important element of, of, of cooperation where, you know, where the private sector and government can work together and campaign planning against different types of cyber attacks. Um, but the, the kind of the integration of like speed of data information sharing uh, from industry and from the intelligence community is hampered by both sides. Both of them are slightly disingenuous. They'll come on your show. They'll come on other talk with other press and say, we're fully committed to this. But then when the legislation gets proffered, both, you know, I, I watch both of them reach into the system and try to weaken, temper it, or just out and out kill it. So I, I'm afraid I, neither the private sector nor the intelligence community are approaching this with the sense of urgency that I think is necessary. And, and what's the right way to do it? Well, I think the right way to do it is the joint collaborative environment that Representative Jim Lamsey has put forward. And, uh, you know, sadly, this is his last legislative cycle. And I'm hoping he has the political, you know, the silver bullet saved up to really push through the version that's in the House NDA. We were not able to get one in the Senate NDAA. And I will tell you, I, I hold the intelligence community responsible for that. Right. They, they routinely try to exempt themselves from any sharing effort. And when you exempt yourselves, you make it worthless to the private sector. So that's right. the truth of it. So we now need to get in conference to a good solution. Um, let me take one other tack, though, which is that several, and this is from the government, we have not done a good job updating critical infrastructure. The first critical infrastructure list was in something called the, the uh, Presidential Decision Directive 63 and the National Structural Assurance Plan. I was working at the NSC at the time on these in 1998. We had six or seven sectors. We've updated it several times. It is now woefully out of date. It does not address space systems as a critical infrastructure, for example. Right. But more importantly, it doesn't address cloud service providers. And that came up at this uh, at the Cyber Threat Conference. And people like myself are arguing one of two things needs to happen. Cloud service providers either need to, on their own, get together and establish an industry-level floor for security that says we will not provide products or allow products inside our cloud that don't meet this minimum level. And it needs to be a recognizable minimum level, you know, a real one. Um, if they don't, then I think the government has to take a strong look at regulating this into existence. And, and, and I think it would have to be the Federal Trade Commission. I'll just say that's probably not the path that Google, Amazon, AWS, or Microsoft Azure would like to go down. So I would strongly encourage them to look at a, um, at a, at a private sector-led government state, you know, uh, meeting a government, a, gov a pre-existing government set standard as a floor in all their products. Um, one of the uh, folks uh, that we also heard from at, at the conference was uh, former CISA director, Chris Grebs, uh, who made the case that CISA should uh, become an independent agency and that the organizations and approaches that we're actually using now are sort of ill-suited for the magnitude uh, of, of the task. Does CISA need to be uh, an independent agency or a government department. Uh, and what do you make of Chris's bigger criticism? Because he, he does have a point, right? I mean, this is a massive problem. 
and we're trying to do it in the confines of the system we we have uh, and the approaches uh, approaches that we have. So thanks. I, I'm going to help Chris out here by clarifying, and and he said it here at the SIG, and he said that in the past he said it, had not been fully quoted. He's saying looking forward in the future, and and what he would define that I think as, and you'd have to ask him specifically, is seven to ten years from now. Right. And and if that's the 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 argument, I'm not sure. I I disagree uh, with him. Uh, you know, in other words, I, I think I might agree that seven to ten years from now, you know, the government should look at its organization, and maybe CISA would be ready to be an independent agency then, or and maybe it's combined with the National Cyber Director as its uh, titular head. But that's seven to ten years from now. Today, CISA needs to function as an effective agency within the Department of Homeland Security. It needs to be properly resourced to that. And it needs to carry out the, the significant amount of authorizations it's received. I would be surprised if a federal agency has received as much guidance from Congress uh, in any three-year period as CISA has received from this, these, these Congress, you know, from the U.S. Congress over right. the last three years. And their budget, with a, a lot of push from uh, Jim Langevin, Mike Gallagher, you know, Angus King and Ben Sass, has gone from one point. Eight billion, and I think it's going to end up around three billion over three years. That is, you can't grow federal agency budgets any faster without burning money in a barrel, right? So, I mean, we definitely have to make CISA work as it functions today, and then when we have the luxury of sitting back, you know, think about what Chris is saying, and he may be right that seven to ten years from now, there's a different organizational metric, but for today, we need to execute what we have today. I, I see exactly where he, he's going and the need to be pragmatic in between those two poles, right, Ben? Because when you create a new organization, there's a lot of disruption that goes along with that and 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 compute, confusion, even if it might be the right wrong-term answer. We have some pressing immediate things that we need to, to get done. Um, we, we've got a couple of minutes left. But first, I want to ask you, um, I'm, I'm, we're going to talk about the national security strategy. Finally, better late than ever, the administration has it out. Uh, we're going to talk about it on the roundtable uh, tomorrow uh, and then break it up into elements and then have you back to discuss it. But wanted to ask you about the cyber elements of this and elements of this strategy that have cyber implications from your uh, standpoint, what they are, what they got right, where they need more work. Well, first, they got China right. I would even say that before I say about cyber um, and they got to keep it there. And I, I, I get worried when, you know, I worked at a, I was working on an NS, a national security strategy back in 1997, where I think we ended up with 93 number one priorities. You know, and after a while, you know, you can't have that many number one priorities. So I kind of wish on occasion the U.S. government would just say what the number one problem is and like, and then say next next section, right? Like, like we're out of the priority section now. We'll talk about other things that interest us, like inflation and climate change, but let's acknowledge that China's the number one problem. But that's not how it works. They've got this. I will say they had some great stuff on um, on the tools of American power. Um, I think the investments and, in, you know, discussing investments in microchips and semiconductors, but also in that kind of, you know, that innovation area and software um, and hopefully expanding back into IT hardware where America has excelled and, and made our bones both economically and militarily over the last 40 years. So they're absolutely hitting that right. And in cyber, like in everything else, allies and partners matter and this administration's hitting that right. And they hit it right. They have the right tone for that in here. But let's be clear, this national security strategy is you know, really about security. It's the national cyber strategy that Chris Inglis is developing. I expect one of the things that was waiting for was this to be out. I, 
I would imagine it's within you know uh, a month of delivery, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, the the right team, the right office is right. That national cyber director office, the right team is writing it. The people I know there who are working it, and I am confident we're going to get a high quality product out of that. That's going to have measurable things, action items for the government to do. So it'll provide a strategic, you know, sh- you know, overlay, and then an implementation effort that can get us, that can move us along the track. That's how we ran the Cyberspace Labor Commission. And, I'm, I, and I suspect that's how Chris will ensure the national cyber strategy has value. Um, we, we've got about 30 seconds left. I want to get your stance on the Senate and NDAA. You mentioned it up top. All I have to tell you is if everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. Uh, and without, uh, you know, and I, I remember uh, Christine uh, Wormuth when she was in the think tank world occasionally would talk about it. And now the Secretary of the United States Army would, would talk about sometimes how these strategies, uh, you know, like the QDR became a Christmas tree. And everybody hangs their ornament on it. And, and, and eventually it fills out a tree. But there are a lot of ornaments. And it can be a little bit uh, distracting without putting any words in her mouth. NDAA, Senate NDAA, what did you like about it? I know we know what you didn't like about it, <laughs> but yeah. what did you so like listen, about it and what the Senate is doing? Look, and what do you I'm hope gets addressed NDAA. in conference? Yeah, so on the Senate NDAA, uh, I, overall, I like it. Look, th- I didn't, the joint collaborative environment's not in there. Uh, the Bureau of Cyber Statistics is not in there. Um, the JCE, we can go try to rework in conference. It's what's in there that really matters. It's got, a, a good grunge of cyber uh, activity and assistant secretary of defense for cyber. It's got a, uh, a, a civilian reserve pilot program. It's got um, uh, explicit money for cyber partnerships. It's got um, uh, the, uh, the American security drones act, which is critical to securing our national critical infrastructure against the proliferation of Chinese drones everywhere. And the thing I love the most, it's not cyber is it's got, Title II of the Taiwan Policy Act, which I've talked to you about before. And they took the 6.5 billion in FMF guidance and made it 10 billion, which is the right number all along, the number we had recommended a year and a half ago. That it dropped a lot of the political stuff that the administration didn't like about the Taiwan Policy Act and doubled down on the military stuff, which includes storage of munitions, training with our uh, with, with Taiwan's forces, planning and with Taiwan's forces, and then unilateral planning by us. And then finally, the FMF money I mentioned. So that a big win. The NDA, the Senate NDAA is great. The House NDAA has a ton of stuff in it, especially a lot of our cyber stuff that I'm excited to see. I think when we bring these two together, if we can conference almost everything into play, we're going to have a great NDAA. Mark, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks very much. Thank you, Vago.